You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Uh, Greetings, uh, everyone, and welcome to our time here together, Um, turning to the Christian mystic Thomas Merton um, for guidance and helping us to deepen our experience of and response to God's presence in our life. In in this session, uh, I'll be sharing a passage that focuses on the theme of prayer in Thomas Merton. We, we, we saw this before, we referred to this passage before in an earlier session, uh, the passage, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. But there we stopped at the first three words, uh, My Lord God, um, to, uh, as a way of grounding ourselves in the devotional sincerity in which this deepening union with God takes place in prayer. So I went and I'll return to that passage again. I'll read it. And then um, share with you how uh, Merton's uh, prayerful exchange with God in this passage is um, sharing with us how he's learning to understand himself and to understand his life in the presence of God and to understand how God sustains him and guides him. And so uh, Merton in the monastery uh, listened deeply to God. And having listened deeply to God, his, his lexio and prayer and silence in the Psalms, he's now talking to God, uh, engaging in kind of a meditative dialogue with God. And um, as, I, as I listen to Merton's words, talk, as he talks to God, his words become my lexio. That is, I, I, I hear the rhythms or cadences of God's voice uh, communicating itself to me in Merton's words. And uh, as I share with you what I personally see in this passage, as you listen to me, my words become your lexio. That is how you might possibly hear the cadence or the rhythms of God speaking to you in these words in your life. And uh, so you can deepen that and personalize that in your own meditation and in your own prayer and in your own life. And and in particular here, how this uh, quiet time with God in prayer, this kind of daily rendezvous with God in prayer, um, how it sheds a light on our life, on how we understand our life in the presence of God and find God in our life. And uh, so in that spirit then, I'll, I'll read the passage and then I'll kind of perfectly walk through it with you uh, so that then you on your own can sit with it on how what strikes you. And I'm also, I think, modeling here how to read a text that is how it's so personal and so endlessly evocative. And uh, with the repetition, you could go over it again and again, and the repetition is not redundant. So Merton writes, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. 
But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I'd like to reflect on this text. So my Lord God then grounds us in this devotional sincerity. He's speaking from his heart the God who has spoken to him the scripture and life. And he's allowing us to listen into this prayer to see what light it might shed uh, on our life, on our way of experiencing and understanding God in our life. And he begins by saying, I have no idea where I am going. So uh, what, what does that mean? Like, how are we to... Um, uh, understand what he means here. It seems to me first at a certain level, he certainly does know where he's going at a certain factual level, that he lived in the monastery. And he can assume that the patterns of the monastic life, prayer and work, like the rhythms of that life following the liturgical year and so on, I was going to continue on. He also knew that his ministry of writing and also his novice master, spiritual direction, Probably that was going to continue on. Just like with us, just you know, I, th- I think we, we're in a certain pattern. You, you might happen to be right now in a time of radical transition where things are very unforeseeable. But I think for most of us, most of the time, there's a fairly stable pattern where, uh, to some degree at least, we have some sense about we're next week, next month, next year, whatever, some sense of where we assume we might be in a few years you know, where we're going. So what's that mean is I have no idea where I am going. And, um, and so I, I, I think here, I think what helps for me is to, is to consider how many times as we look back at our life, we, we were fairly confident about where we were headed. It, not just confident about how something was going to turn out, a relationship or a career or a health situation, whatever. Um, but it ended up uh, getting blindsided by an unexpected grace or an unexpected crisis. It set things off in a whole new direction. Also, we thought we knew where we were going, but there was a radical shift in, in the meaning that it had to us. The example I have is coming across a journal we may have written, say, five years ago or ten years ago, even forgot you wrote the thing. As you sit down and you read your own journal, the things you worried about, things you wondered about, the way you saw things, you know, so that if the you that wrote that journal could see the you that's reading it now, you know, it would faint. I mean, it just how incomprehensible are the transformative changes that go on in our minds and hearts as we go through life. You know, I, I think there's that. Sister Macrina Whitaker wrote that beautiful book, A Tree Full of Angels, some years ago. She told me she was invited to write an essay on a book called Things of Which I'm Certain. And so it was a collection of essays of people on on what they're certain of. And um, what came out of our dialogue was the things I used to be certain of 
I'm no longer certain of. The things I used to be certain of that I am certain of, I'm no longer certain of in the way that I used to be certain of those things. And I'm fairly certain that this is going to continue. See? And so Merton is kind of touching on it. It's a kind of humble, humble acknowledgement of a certain dimension of unforeseeability uh, in our passage through time. And, um, and I think also... Uh, to me, at least, as connotations of death, you know, that when we pass through the veil and disappear into the depths of death, you know, we, we know in, in faith what that means, uh, that we're not be annihilated but consummated, and we're going to move into an eternal, infinite union with the infinite love of God as our destiny. But our finite mind cannot grasp what that means. See, it's, it's, it's hidden. Our destiny and infinite love is hidden from us, even though it's already strangely present in the depths of ourselves. And um, so um, this thing is, I do not know where I am going. He goes further by saying, adding to what he doesn't know, he doesn't see, uh, that he doesn't see the road ahead of him, nor does he know for certain where it will end. You know, for Merton, I think he was fairly certain, he was certain at this point when he was writing this, that he was going to die in the monastery. And he could have not grasped how years later um, he was going to die in Bangkok, Thailand, being electrocuted in a hotel room in Bangkok in an international conference of monastics in Asia. And uh, so that's where it ended. And I think also he, he didn't know where it would end, where at the time of his death, where he, where he would be in his own evolving thought processes as he moved through the years, how his own thought deepened and was enriched by deep interfaith dialogue with the non-Christian traditions and social justice and his poetry and so on. And so uh, we do not know, that it isn't just that we don't know the day or the hour, see, but we don't know where we will be when that hour strikes. And, uh, but if God is Lord of life, God is Lord of death. And um, the, we are sustained by God in, on, up to, and through, and beyond death itself. He then adds, as he continues to deepen his experiential self-knowledge and this kind of humility in the presence of God, he, he adds that, he, that he, he doesn't know who he is, that he doesn't know himself. And um, not just in the sense of the journal, where this kind of unfolding, like the layers and layers and layers, but also I think there's another sense too, where it's very hard for the self to accept the extent that it can hide itself from itself. And all of a sudden, some internalized thing within us that was there all along influencing us we didn't know was there, like the bringing of the shadow self you know, out into the open. There's a lovely passage here um, in Merton on this, related to this. Merton writes, this is in uh, The Intimate Merton from one of the journal entries. <clears throat> uh, Brilliant and gorgeous day, bright sun, breeze making all the leaves and high brown grasses shine, singing of the wind and the cedars, exultant day, 
in which even a puddle in the pig lot shines like precious silver. Finally, I'm coming to the conclusion that my highest ambition is to be what I already am, that I will never fulfill my obligation to surpass myself unless I first accept myself. And if I accept myself fully in the right way, I will already have surpassed myself. For it is the unaccepted self that stands in my way and will continue to do so as long as it is not accepted. When it has been accepted, it will be my own stepping stone to what is above me, because this is the way man has been made by God. Original sin was the effort to surpass oneself by being like God, that is, unlike oneself. But in our godliness, we are at home. We must first accept ourselves. We must accept ourselves to experience this homecoming, you see. And um, so the shadow, you know, this Jungian sense of the shadow is that it isn't just that we hide from ourselves the woundedness of ourselves that we're not yet ready to see and accept. See, like an AA of the fearless inventory. See, it isn't just that we, we hide our weaknesses from ourselves. Uh, but what's also is we also hide our gifts from ourselves. The existential psychologist Rollo May says if the neurosis of Freud's age was repressed sexuality, it's hardly the neurosis of our age. Because he believes the neurosis of our age is that we're afraid to, to be all that we are. It is we're afraid to accept the full potential of who we are and what we're called to be. Because if we accept it, we may, just might have to stand up and bear witness to it. And so we're kind of caught between this kind of closed down, shutting off uh, of the weaknesses not acknowledged because we attribute authority to them to name who they are, and they don't because only love has the authority to name who we are. And we also are trepidate, we have trepidation in admitting a potential within us, a gift, because we don't know if giving ourselves to it, what it will ask of us. But the price paid for the half-lived life is bitter. And uh, and so Merton is Merton is, is uh, cared, uh, sharing with us this this uh, prayer that um, uh, that he doesn't know himself in, in these in this deep sense. Uh, there's another deep sense he doesn't know himself yet. That he, he he's acknowledging that he hasn't yet joined God. In knowing who God knows him to be, hidden with Christ and God from before the origins of the universe. See, which is this, as we see later, we'll keep moving in, which is this kind of mystical sense of this. So all the, there's, there's a kind of a humble litany here of acknowledgments of the poverty and limitations and as he sits in the presence of God. And then the passage turns here when he says, but I believe. So up till now, it's been the deepening of a kind of experiential knowledge and humility. Then out of that humility is born a belief that he has. The belief, he says, that the desire to please you does in fact please you. When Merton says, with God, a little sincerity goes a long, long way. And we're talking here now about purity of intention. Of course, that intention is always subject to discernment back to self-deception and kind of sifting it out and being as honest and real as we can. But is there some core 
sense some core intention of sincerity to want to please God. And um, I believe the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And what is it that pleases God? See, Bernard would say, like, what, what is that in these, these traditions here? See, what pleases God is that we let into our heart how deeply in love God is with us, just as we are. And what pleases God is that we, in letting in and being accessed, that God is infinitely in love with us. It pleases God when we then, faults and failings and all, then give ourselves in love to the infinite love of God that gives itself to us. That that reciprocity of love uh, pleases God because it brings about the union that is our ultimate destiny that's being realized in prayer and daily life. that I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope, he doesn't know for sure because of his frailty, he's just a human being. I hope that I have that desire in all that I am doing. So he moves then, he, he moves then from a belief, in this belief in the faith, in the midst of his deepening humility of his own poverty, there's a corresponding belief of He's tethered to God by the sincerity of his desire to please God. That's, he, he's tethered, he and God are tethered together in the, in the purity of his heart and that in, intention. And then in that tethering, that bond, is a hope. See, he believes and now he hopes that I have that desire in all that I am doing throughout my whole day. May I, I live my whole day with an underlying attitudinal stance of doing what I'm doing in a way that pleases you, which is to do it in a way that embodies love towards myself, toward another person, a plant, an animal, for the gift of life. And now his clarity deepens. Where it goes from a, a belief to a hope. And he says, now I know. See, this is a kind of a, a gnosis, a kind of a deep certainty that's given to him in the presence of God. I know that if I do this, that is live in this way, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know, though I may know, I may know nothing about it. It's a very mysterious statement. See, that if I do this, he tells God, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. What's this mean? I mean, you can... So with what it means to you, to me, it's this. One way I would understand in terms of the gospel. That uh, when we look at the crucifixion, Jesus, Mr. of the Cross, uh, he, he was led along a road that led him to that death. You see, like it's, it so happened, it came to pass. Events unfolded in such a way. He, he knew the score. He saw where it was headed. There was all of that. There was all of that. And yet, as he hung there, and, and, and he lost his faith there, in the devastation, which means that God's one with us in our devastation, in our loss. See, into your hands I commend my spirit. 
and that's the right road. See, if the cross is the crucifixion of our dreaded and cherished illusions, that anything less or other than infinite union with the infinite love of God will ever be enough to, to, to silence the restless stirrings of our heart, the cross is the crucifixion of those illusions. And so at one level, it is important to have some sense of where we're going. I have my life, you have yours. I mean, that's real. That matters. You know, but sometimes you find yourself in an unlikely place, really. You know, a, a completely unforeseeable blessing, a completely unseeable loss, the end of a long hallway at the end of a, a hospital corridor in a hospice somewhere, some strange place. And there, though it may, everything may seem to be lost. It's, it's the right road you don't know anything about because of how mysteriously God guides you and sustains you and leads you on and on and on along the circuitous unfoldings of the unforeseeability of things. See? You will lead me by the right road, although I may know nothing about it. Like this. Therefore, now he moves then from this knowledge to a deep sense of trust, which is faith. Therefore, will I trust you always? See, not trust myself, not trust my perceptions, not trust my conclusions, not trust my opinions. I have those. They're real up to a point. They matter. They count. But will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death? But even if it comes to that, see, the worst possible thing imaginable, and which seems like utter loss, death, even so, even if that's true, I will not fear. It isn't that I won't be afraid, but I'm not afraid of being afraid. I will not fear, for you, you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. That God is the presence that spares us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things. And that unexplainable sustaining to, to the ups and downs and unfoldings of our life is this deep uh, sense. See? So this prayer then, this, this prayer then is a prayer in which in the presence of God he has this deepening sense of self-knowledge. And it's a self-knowledge in which in the presence of God he reflects on his life. And the process of reflecting on his life leads him to this deepening clarity and this deep trust in God who has up to this point so mysteriously brought him up to this very moment in which he's saying these things to God, just as God brought you up to these very moments in which you're listening to me, and God has brought me up to this very moment in which I'm sharing these things with you. And so um, th this is my thought then in terms of uh, kind of mentoring here, kind of offering guidance and how I found it very helpful to read a text like this as spiritual guidance, as, as Lexio Divina, like this, because it's endlessly evocative. So you could see how on your own you could take this text and on your own you could journal this out, whoever would help you to do it, and you could journal off phrase by phrase by phrase to kind of sit with the, 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 uh, the, 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 the endless implications of these s subtle clarity, the subtle clarity into the ways of God 
that is the, the mysterious nature of this very path that you're on right now. Otherwise, you wouldn't be inclined to listen to things like this. So, uh, with that said, then, uh, let's end with bring this to meditation. And again, as always, right now the, the meditation here will be very brief. But then uh, uh, on your own, um, you can go back and um, um, make this part of your daily rendezvous with God, sitting with this passage if you're so inclined, uh, in your prayer time. And then also follow these guidelines and how you sit with all these passages, how you sit with Scripture and all these teachings that we'll be looking at together. So with that then... um, I invite you to sit straight and fold your hands and bow. Repeat after me. Be still and know I am God. Be still and know I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be. say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. Juliana of Norwich, pray for us. The author of The Cloud of Unknowing, pray for us. Blessings. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. 
We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.